Welcome to Lebanon Christian Church. Uh, we are so glad you're here. And again, thank you for staying with us online. Uh, we launched at the beginning of the summer uh, an emphasis on spiritual disciplines that will take us uh, through the summer and into the early part, uh, actually through most of the fall. Spiritual disciplines, we've been saying, if you've not been with us, are these intentional habits, behaviors, practices that we engage in, that we see modeled and written in scripture that help cultivate the life of a Jesus follower in us, to help cultivate the character of Jesus in us. We, we might even use the phrase, they, they cultivate Christ-likeness. So we have Jesus the Christ, the term that means the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and spiritual disciplines help cultivate that same character in us. We look to Jesus as disciples of Jesus as the ultimate example of what it looks like uh, to live human life in its best form. Like, like he is the epitome. He is the, the pinnacle. He, he models for us the fullness of human life. And so how do we cultivate that same life in us? And it's through these things we call spiritual disciplines that we intentionally engage in. Uh, spiritual disciplines, if you look at that word discipline, you can't spell the word discipline without also including the letters to the word disciple. Disciplines do just that. They discipline our mind, they discipline our attitude, they discipline our will, they discipline our heart and our actions to come into alignment with what God's best is for us as men and women created in his image uh, to bring glory to him for. Ever. And so as we launched this, we looked first at the discipline of hospitality. What does it look like to have open hearts, open hands, open homes, and, 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 and welcome people into our lives and into our world and build relationships with them so they can counter Jesus? And last week, we launched this next discipline with our celebration service called uh, the discipline of service. Well, what comes to mind when you think of service? When you hear that word, what comes to mind? I'm guessing a number of things. We use that word pretty freely in our society. Maybe you think of thanking first responders or military members for their service, right? Uh, maybe you think of customer service. I mean, which of us hasn't waited in line somewhere at a customer service counter hoping that someone would come alongside us and help us? Maybe you think of service in the sense of how was the service at the restaurant? How did people uh, serve your needs? Or maybe you think of service calls. Maybe you find yourself in one of the industries will, where people will call you for a service call to come service their air conditioner, their furnace, or, or work on your plumbing. Or maybe you think of service in terms of community service. Maybe you work for a civic or, or you volunteer for a civic organization, work for a company where it's a core value of theirs as service. Or maybe you've been convicted of some sort of crime and you had to serve community service hours. What do we mean in all of those things? Where we or we and a group of people come alongside somebody else or a bunch of other people and we help them with something. That's what we often mean by service. And so what's your response to the idea of service? I'm guessing it's pretty neutral or if not even positive. We, we tend to value service and customer service. We talk about how important it is, talk about how important it is that our uh, men and women would go and serve our country and, and, and put their lives on the line and men and women would serve in law enforcement and the fire department and uh, the first responders with ambulances and paramedics. And it's like, we usually generally have a, a positive response, uh, the very worst, a neutral response to service. Now compare that to your response 
to how you think of the word servant. What comes to mind when you think of a servant? I'm guessing your response is a little more negative than even neutral or positive. Oftentimes we bring to mind images from history books of people forced to do things, to force to put their wills aside for the will of another, forced to expend their time, their energy, their resources for the agenda and desires of another person rather than their own. So here's this conflict we have. We, we like service, but we struggle with servant. Now, I want you to see why this is important. It, we live in a culture where we condition ourselves to see that success often is greater the more people you have serving your needs. So when we look at the American dream, when we wanna see what is, what is the best, what can I aspire to, oftentimes the greater success is more people serving you. So you're more successful if people can clean your home, if people can mow your grass, if people can bring groceries to your door, if you can schedule regular massages with someone who can help your sore muscles, and the list just goes on and on. The greater number of people serving you, the greater is your success. Now, please hear this. I'm not saying that having someone mow your grass, having someone bring your groceries to your door, having someone clean your home, that any of those things are bad. If you have all those things going for you, like, hey, more power to you. I'm not saying any of that is bad. What I'm saying is that we are conditioned to desire service, but we struggle with the idea of being a servant. We're conditioned in our culture to want service, to have people do for us but we struggle with the idea of doing for others. Just, just think about it across our culture. How do we value people that are in the serving industries? Oftentimes, our waiters and waitresses have the lowest wages. Oftentimes, in our companies, the people that do the most backbreaking work get paid the least. We want our service, but we don't value the servant. Why does that matter to us as disciples of Jesus? Because we have a God who sent his son to earth as a servant of all, who prioritizes servanthood in our lives, and yet we want the service and not being the servant. Thankfully, as disciples of Jesus, Jesus gives us clear instructions. We're gonna be hanging out in Matthew chapter 20 today. Uh, Matthew chapter 20 uh, specifically verses 20 through 28 is, uh, I think, a pretty familiar story to you if you have been around the church for a while. If not, it might be an eye-opening story to you today when you hear it for the first time. So kind of timeline in Jesus' life, he is moving into the final, like, two minutes. This is like we're moving into football season. This is the two-minute drive of Jesus' life. He's moving into the final, uh, the final thing. He's moving towards Jerusalem. He's got a band of followers. He doesn't have just the 12, but, but other people have come to follow him as well. So he has the 12 main disciples, but he also has other disciples who are following him. We hear in Luke's account about these women who are supporting him with their ministry. We're gonna learn in this account that some of the parents of some of these disciples are with him. So there's kind of this small entourage, this contingent that's moving towards Jerusalem with Jesus. Jesus has just told them, whether it's a day before or only hours before, that as they get closer to Jerusalem, something crazy is gonna happen that Jesus is going to be tortured and beaten and crucified and killed. That that's gonna happen to him and then he'll rise again. And so things are kind of ominous. There's kind of this pressure building as he moves towards Jerusalem. 
And along the way, some of the traveling conversation are two of his disciples and their mom asking about their future in Jesus' kingdom. What's their position in his future kingdom? Here's how the conversation unfolds. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, a sign of respect, she asked a favor of him. She has a favor to ask of Jesus. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. A couple thoughts on what's happening here. First of all, who are these two? Well, it says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons. We know from Matthew chapter four, verse 21, that Zebedee's sons are none other than James and John. They're two of Jesus' closest followers. So this is the mother of James and John. We also know, looking at Mark's account, Mark is really good at giving us brief accounts from Jesus' life. Mark tells us that it's James and John that ask this question. Does that mean there's a contradiction between Matthew and Mark? No, Mark, for brevity, gets to the point. James and John are behind the question. Now, it's likely that James and John had their mama ask because as a mother, as a respected woman, uh, it might not seem as bad coming from her. We, we know from verse 23 that there's a plural you used here. Jesus is addressing. He knows the heart. He knows this comes from James and John. So James and John want to know uh, who, who gets to sit at your right and your left? And Jesus, can we have those positions? It, there's a lot that's changed in our world since this day and age. But what I like to point out sometimes is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. One of the things that remains the same from the ancient world till today is often those seated closest to a person in power are people that share some of that power. They have influence, they have prestige, and they have honor. Uh, you can think about it governing leaders, whether it's our president or uh, the prime minister of another nation or, or a dictator, oftentimes near them are people with great honor and great power. Who's often near our president when they're delivering a press conference? The vice president, sometimes the speaker of the house. People have positions of honor. Who's often in a boardroom when the company president is delivering an address? The chief financial officer and the chief executive officer, the CFO and the CEO. Like, who's often surrounding people in prominence? The people in next greatest prominence. And, and so here are what the disciples are asking. When we come into your kingdom, Jesus, when, when your kingdom comes into its fullness, they probably don't even know what the reality that looks like truly. Can we have a position of honor? And Jesus says, guys, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? That, that phrase is a bit peculiar to us. We don't think of destiny in terms of cups that we drink from. But throughout the Old Testament, this phrase occurs again and again, sometimes speaking of a destiny that's full of blessing, but oftentimes speaking of a destiny that's full of difficulty. He says, can you guys experience what I'm about to experience? Now rewind a little bit to that conversation in verses 17 through 19. He's told them he's going to suffer be mocked, flogged, and crucified. That's the cup he's going to drink from. Can you guys suffer with me? And listen to James and John's valiant response. We can. And Jesus is like, yeah, you, you will indeed drink from my cup, guys, but you probably don't have any idea what you're agreeing with at this moment. 
but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Basically, Jesus says, guys, listen, I appreciate your earnestness. I appreciate your desire. You have no idea what you're asking. Um, And besides, those decision rights belong to my Father and not to me. Well, as this conversation unfolds, guess who hears what's happening? The other 10. Why can't we get in on that? So verse 24, then when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers, likely because they weren't the first ones to ask the question. Jesus sees the squabble unfolding, the difficulty, and like a good rabbi, he instructs them. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. What Jesus is saying, the the word Gentiles here speaks to people who are outside of the kingdom of God. You know how people who are outside of my kingdom, my father's kingdom, you know how people who aren't following me handle authority and power. They want it to be from the top down to push people down, to, to exert their influence and their authority over them. But look at verse 26, four powerful words. Not so with you. Modern day translation, maybe a little outdated. Guys, that's not how I roll. Instead, whoever wants to become great, whoever aspires that position of honor among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. We know from Paul's writings, we know from what we call extra biblical resources, uh, history books that aren't written from a Christian perspective, that in Roman society in the first century, servanthood and slavery was not something people aspired to. And yet Jesus names two different types of service. He says first, he says, instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The word Jesus uses in Greek is diakonos, a phrase that literally means to wait on tables. He says, if you want to be great, you've got to be willing to be the one that comes alongside other people and waits on them. It's actually a term that's used throughout the New Testament to to refer to great servants, men and women alike. You've got to be willing to wait on other people if you want to be great. Not have them wait on you, not be from the top down, but you've got to be willing to wait on others. And if that's not enough, what does he say in verse 27? Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. It's an even stronger term. It's the Greek word doulos. It speaks to that image of a person who has no will of their own, but instead is in bondage to the will and the desires of the the agenda of another. Jesus says, if you want to be great, it doesn't come by getting this great position. It comes by assuming the position of a servant and a slave. This is what I prize in my kingdom. It's just as shocking to them as it is to you and I. We live in a culture that wants service but doesn't prize being a servant. In Jesus' world, it was the same way. You wanted people to serve you. You wanted someone to pour your wine. You wanted someone to come alongside and wash your feet. You wanted somebody to prepare your meal. But you didn't want to be the one serving. And Jesus said, in my kingdom, it's different. In my kingdom, the one who wants to be great serves. He waits on tables. She waits on tables. And the one who wants to be first, they move to the back of the line and they're the slave. They put aside their will and their agenda for the agenda of another. 
Now we know who that another is, it's Jesus. It's ridiculous, it's, it's, it's revolutionary. So much of the way of Jesus turns our thinking upside down. That's why a popular phrase for Jesus' kingdom is his upside down kingdom. The way we operate from top down in our world is different in Jesus' world. He operates from the bottom up, he serves, he lifts up, he elevates by way of his service. And what's most ridiculous about this is that the one who deserves the greatest honor in, in, in Sean's prayer, he prayed some of the words of Philippians chapter two, that every tongue uh, would confess and every knee would bow. Philippians chapter two tells us that he assumed the nature of a servant was made in human likeness. He, he didn't hold on to what he had as being in equality with God, but he let it go. He emptied himself. So Jesus does the very thing he calls us to. Isn't that what we want as disciples of someone? We wanna do what our teacher does? And, and this is what Jesus does. And look at him, this is his mission, this is his purpose. Verse 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I came seeking to serve. If we are going to be men and women who follow King Jesus, we're gonna be disciples of King Jesus, one of the disciplines that we have to intentionally cultivate because it's so countercultural is this discipline of service that I would choose to intentionally serve another, to wait upon them, to cast aside my will, my agenda, my desires for the will, agenda, and desires of the Father. So then we have to remember the words of Paul to the Colossians is that when, when we come along to serve, we're doing it not for men, but we're doing it for God. So how do we cultivate this heart of service in our lives? How do we cultivate this discipline of service? How do we become men and women who will serve? I like what John Ortberg says in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, which is a guide to spiritual disciplines. Uh, he mentions several options. Uh, the one that, the two that I wanna focus on are the ministry of the mundane and a willingness to be interrupted. If you wanna cultivate a life of service and you wanna practice the discipline of service, one of the things we have to recognize is the importance of the mundane. What, what John means by this is that so often we grow our discipline of service, not by serving in grandiose ways, but by serving in small ways, and that grows a heart within us as we foster humility in our lives. How do you practice the grace or the, or the discipline of service in the mundane? Well, it's intentionally letting someone merge in traffic in front of you. Not, not out of anger, not out of spite, but because you're willing to let go and let another come first. It comes by being the one who's willing to get up in the night so someone else doesn't have to get up in the night. It's by being willing to be the one who, who, who comes alongside the person who's, who's, who's stranded on the side of the road. It's, it's, it's a willingness to, to reach for the grocery on the high shelf for the person struggling to reach up high. It's a willingness to pause to help the person load groceries into their car. It's just all those routine and mundane things that you and I encounter in the everyday of our lives. Well, what have you already experienced so far in your Sunday? What mundane opportunities have you had to serve another? Thinking about what's coming ahead, you probably have somewhat of a predictable pattern for your weekends. What are likely opportunities that lie ahead? Is there going to be an opportunity to just jump in and help with the dishes or the meal preparation or checking the pressure on the tires of the car or walking outside with a younger sibling and throwing the football or the baseball with them or giving up the remote control to the TV 
For some of you, that's a huge act of service. Like, hey, you pick. The ministry of the mundane, you foster the discipline of service by just choosing to see everyday opportunities to say, listen, it's not about me, but I'm gonna come alongside you. I'm gonna wait upon you. The, the next idea that I wanna share from John Ortberg's book is the willingness to be interrupted. If you wanna foster the discipline of service in your life, you have to allow yourself to be interrupted. Oftentimes, the most meaningful ways we can serve other people are not convenient to us. Someone stops by our office at what we think is just the wrong time. We are just waiting to make that phone call or we were just getting ready to fill in the blank. Or the person needs help on the side of the road and yet we're five minutes late to our appointment. Are you willing to be interrupted to come alongside someone else? I love a suggestion that John Ortberg makes in his book. He talks about scheduling an intentional day of secret service. He does this in his calendar. He'll go on his calendar and he'll block out a day and, and it's a day where it just says that he is busy, but he knows that he is actually busy with absolutely nothing and he just waits. And as the emails come and as the phone rings, he comes alongside his family and his friends and his coworkers and he just serves whatever needs they have, a willingness to be interrupted to give of our lives. A third idea I wanna offer to you, not from his book, but I think it's a challenge that we disciples in the United States of America need, and that's to seek out opportunities to serve. There's a lie that has been proclaimed in the American church for my entire lifetime, which is 43 years. I'm assuming it's the whole time. I can't remember back to probably year 10 anymore, but for like the last 33 years of my life, I've heard this. It comes in various forms. It goes something like this, is that your best servants won't sign up, they have to be asked. Your best servants have to be invited to serve, they won't seek out opportunities to serve. But yet my experience of 43 years is the exact opposite. The very best servants in Christ's church are not people who have to be begged. They're people who seek out opportunities. Why do we perpetuate the lie and we say people won't sign up for that, you have to ask them. People won't sign up to serve in that way, you have to ask them. When we look at the example of Jesus, what did he do? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve. He sought out service opportunities. Did people have to stand around and beg Jesus, please come, please come, please come, please? No, he sought it out. So why do we who model our lives after Jesus believe this lie that we can't sign up to help in any way, whether it's the church or, or our kids' school or, or the, 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 the ball teams in our community or a civic organization, unless somebody comes knocking on our door and begging us? That's not the heart of Jesus. That's not the heart of Christ. If you want to practice the discipline of service, we start seeking out opportunities to serve. And you know what happens when disciples of Jesus seek out opportunities to serve? We begin to realize something. That if the millions of disciples that live in the United States of America, there wouldn't be enough roles to be filled in our churches, in our civic organizations, in our communities, if we all sought out opportunities to serve. But what ends up happening, we believe the lie. People have to ask me. Oh, you know, there's the 80-20 rule, Craig. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Well, why do we accept that? If we're disciples of King Jesus, why can't we seek out opportunities to make a difference? Let me ask you this question. Are you a type of person who needs to be begged to serve or is begging to serve? 
How you answer that question reveals a lot about your spiritual maturity. And I'm not talking just about the church, yes. Are there a number of ways that you can serve in roles at Lebanon Christian Church? Yes. But it goes beyond that. It's about a community serve day yesterday where all kinds of people came together to put backpacks on kids' backs full of school supplies and shoes on their feet in our park right here in Lebanon and at Weibo School. It's about coming alongside and helping and mentoring a kid with Boone County Mentoring. It's about showing up at the Shalom House to prepare a meal. There's so many of us, if we could just be people who seek out opportunities to serve, then no one would have to bear too much of a weight if we would choose to expend our lives on behalf of the will and the agenda of King Jesus. And, and, and just in case it's offending anyone, it's not the goal. The goal is here. I mean, this is how we're wired in other parts of our life. Can we just be honest for a moment? Moms and dads in the room. How many times have you either vocalized or thought to yourself, I just wish someone would help without having to be asked? How many of you kids in the room have just said, I just wish my mom and dad would come do something with me without having to be asked? How many of you employers in the room have just said, I just wish an employee would do it without having to be asked? Like, like you see the trash on the floor, just pick it up. Like, that's how we're wired. We, we want that. So, so, so why can't we translate that to the other environments in our community and our world? Let's be people who are people who practice the discipline of service and seek out opportunities to serve. When, when our boys were little, one of their favorite cartoons uh, was the, the cartoon Robots, um, as they called it, Wobots. They loved Wobots. Can we watch Wobots? It chronicled primarily the main character was Rodney Copperbottom, all right? What a great name for a robot. And Rodney Copperbottom was trying to um, make uh, Robot City and Robot World so much better. And Rodney Copperbottom's motto taught to him by his father was this, see a need, fill a need. In other words, if we would be people who would choose to see and to look with eyes and find opportunities to serve, we would find a place and our world would become a better place. May we be men and women who look for opportunities. May we practice the discipline of service, not because it's easy, not because there's a lot of exaltation and praise, but because it's what our Jesus did. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the beauty and the clarity of your word and your example. And God, would you foster in the lives of the disciples here at Lebanon Christian Church a desire to start practicing the discipline of service and God, as you do that, I know there will be a windfall of just transformation, not only in the lives of others, but our own lives. And we will grow in humility in the process. Others will feel valued. Help us to go all in, Father, and serve as you have served us. And it's in your name we pray and trust in the name of Jesus. Amen.